Bill finally gave the Ringer's Philly crew a podcast. I'm Ben Solak. And I'm Shiel Kapadia. That's right, just a couple Philly guys with a new space to fire off some Eagles takes, get caught up in the Sixers chaos, and more. We'll be coming to you twice a week on Sundays and Thursdays, plus bonus episodes whenever we get breaking news or Philly drama. Plus, when Harden and Embiid somehow convince you suckers that this year's going to be different, our fellow Philly stands at the Ringer will have you covered on the Sixers and all your other favorite teams in town. It's Philly sports, Shiel. What could possibly go wrong? Join the fun and follow the Ringer's Philly special now on Spotify. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, Ryan Rosillo. Rosillo, what's up, man? I appreciate it. Hey, congratulations. This is a lot of fun for me, man. So thanks for having me on. No, we appreciate it. Thanks, man. So, hey, let's start with the big news that happened recently with the Celtics. Danilo Gallinari now done for the season. It was weird. Like, originally, we think it's just a meniscus, and it's a torn ACL. I don't know about you, Rosillo. I was getting pretty hyped just because the Celtics were missing shooters, and they had one in Gallinari. How big of a loss do you think this is for them? Well, the best version of it is a loss. Uh, he's he's the most odd player, man. When you watch him, you're like, I don't know if he sweats in games. I, he barely moves. We had Kevin Herter on who, you know, had been his teammate now in Atlanta for a couple of years now in Sacramento. I was like, what is it? Like? And he just started dying laughing. He's like, you'll watch him and he finds ways to get buckets and he really doesn't have to move all that much. But he's played 70 plus games twice in 14 years. And yes, the last few years have been a little bit different, but this is part of the deal of why there wasn't more of a market for him. And it was pretty clear, you know, Boston was in on it early in the trade. He's going to be bought out. They extended the buyout guarantee date, actually, so they could make all the numbers work. And he made up what he gave up and all those kinds of things. Uh, I love the best version of what the Celtics did, but I think this and the Brogdon part of it were both parts where I went, you know... (laughs) I actually would love it if both guys didn't have bad health track records. And that's that's the problem. I mean, Gallo can shoot it. Um, he's a big guy who kind of holds up at times as far as like defensively. I'm not saying he's at the, but he's he was just so efficient at getting you buckets without having to have the basketball a ton. So I, I think it is a blow, but I don't know that any of us can be entirely surprised. I mean, this is why Brogdon was available for what he was, and this is where Gallo's at now. Yeah, and just on the Gallo thing, I mean, I was looking up all the numbers where they're all his teams have been significantly better when he's on the court than off the court offensively. Even without Trey Young on the court last year, they would have had like a top six offense. And I'm not saying it's all because of Gallo, but obviously last year you look at Grant Williams and it felt like 
teams still don't respect him. I mean, how many open threes does he get in the corner? And I understand he hits them, but it just felt like it would have been nice during the regular season. And we know the shortcomings defensively, of course, but it would have been nice to just have that type of player that would give you some spacing and quite frankly, to humble Grant Williams every once in a while, because I mean, that guy at points last season just got annoying. <laughs> you are. You won't stop shooting, man. <laughs> Grant's development has been incredible. Uh, the fact that he became as good of a shooter as he was. But yeah, Bill and I have, have touched on the Grant Williams topic. Nothing makes me laugh harder when uh, the times where Ime Udoka is just like, dude, enough. Like, I've had it. I've had it with you. But, you know, I think there were times the offense, especially in the finals, you're just like, you know, things aren't really working. I think Jalen got exposed a little bit on the handle. Uh, you know, Tatum had a miserable, miserable series. And, you know, maybe that is due to the wrist thing that we've heard more about after that. I don't think that Gallo was necessarily going to be a guy that's like, hey, 25 minutes every single night we're going to play him out there. I think they were going to pace him really well. I think there were going to be matchup times. Uh, he may or may not even have been in the rotation defensively because Grant is that good defensively. Yeah. And, you know, even though I think we agree on some of the Grant stuff, like you'd love having a guy like that because he does hold up really well. And in the end of that Bucks series, I mean, that's like folklore for Celtics fans. But this was the risk um, when you go, wow, this is great. <laughs> like, why aren't more people in on this guy? You're like, well, this is why. And it, and it sucks. And I don't have any problem with these guys playing for their national teams. I think it's great. Uh, most of these guys do not get hurt when they're doing this kind of stuff. So I think we overreact to that a little bit, but yeah, I'm with you. It was just another, you can never have enough shooting. It's like big bullpen arms coming out for a baseball team. You can never have enough of them. And that certainly, uh, changes some of the late rotation stuff, or at least the late, you know, not the late finishers, late five, but what their options would be against certain matchups, uh, maybe even more so in the playoffs. Yeah, well, Rosillo, unless you're high in bloom, then he thinks he always has plenty of bullpen arms, even though he doesn't. So that, that's a different conversation, though. But yeah, I wasn't I, even talking about yeah. them anymore. But yeah, <laughs> I like I like Grant. It's just sometimes he, he can get annoying. Like I remember last year during the regular season, the thing came out that he essentially there was this April Fool's joke where him and Ime were like faking to get in a fight and nobody stopped it because people wanted to see Grant get his ass kicks. So I do like Grant. It's just sometimes he's annoying. But you mentioned Brogdon as well. So that was another interesting one to me because I'm like, well, all they had to give up essentially was a first round draft pick to him. But then you outlined the injury history. And that has to be the reason that they didn't have to give up much for the player, right? Just because the guy's always hurt. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I've told the story before, but if you go back the last, I don't know, 10 plus years, 15 years, talking to people before the draft, which I probably cover as close as anything. And then when you would hear about guys after the fact, um, I would hear about how Brogdon and Michael Porter Jr. are like two of the guys I've heard the most about red flags and their medicals before the draft. Um, there's a reason why Michael Porter Jr. went as late as he did with the high school resume and the recruiting profile and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a reason why Brogdon went in the second round because he's a really steady player. I also think it's like, he doesn't play as an athlete, but he's just so smart, the angles and all those kinds of things. And sometimes you're a little worried about that when your guy's coming into the NBA. But when that trade happened and the reaction to it as if it was this massive ripoff, I was kind of like, really? I, I don't know. Like, I was wondering if they brought it into the trade exception. And, <laughs> I, you know, I don't I don't know that they're that worried about the players that they moved out. It's another first, um, which I don't mind. You know, if you're going to be a good basketball team and your picks you know it's not as much fun on draft night but your picks are going to be late teens and the 20s and you can bring somebody in i'd probably rather see that because it's even hard to find those rotation guys year after year so i like the brogdon one but it just adds to the risk of somebody who's had the injury history and you know i think he's kind of his own guy a lot of times too you know i think milwaukee it was injury and then you know just not 
not being sure like how committed maybe he was to the team. Mm. And then when he went to the Pacers, it was even better. He said all the right things. The basketball part of it's terrific because he truly is a guard that can give you that combo stuff. You know, some of these guys want to be combo guys, but they actually don't really want to give the ball up, you know, and Brogdon to me is, is proven that he can kind of play alongside or run the show. It gives you all of these great options, but I disagreed with the reaction if it was this all time heist, because I think people were being a little, Oh, careless is a traumatic word here, but just a you know, I don't know. They, they, I feel like they were just overlooking the injury history. Yeah, Rosillo, I was one of those people because I was looking at it. And I'm like, holy crap! They needed a playmaker, a decent enough defender. Cue the duck boats, like let's go. And then I looked at the games played. I'm like, oh shit, he, that injury history really is a concern. But in terms of the playmaking, the Celtics obviously struggled in that area, especially when Tatum was off the court in the postseason and the regular season, does he become the second best playmaker on this team? Yeah, if he's right, because, you know, he he's one of those guys like there's just different players where maybe it takes me a little bit longer. Like when Taylor Horton Tucker first showed up when he was good uh, with the Lakers, I'm like, God, he gets that layup off every single time. I was like, oh, God, his arms look long. Like, let me look him up. And like, oh, it's like almost a seven foot wingspan. I was like, all right, that that makes sense. And I'm not saying that Brogdon checks out the same physical part of it, but Brogdon's drives. Like, he just has all that wrong foot, weird takeoff, bad angle. He's already figured out how to counter what your anticipation is. And then he can shoot it. And, he, you know, he's a really good basketball player. Like, I'm not down on it. When the trade happened, I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, and I do think that you need multiple ways to attack offensively when you start getting up there um, and playing the better teams. I thought Boston became pretty predictable offensively. And if you look at some of those fourth quarter offensive rating numbers, like, it's, you know, that, that offense – ran into something in Golden State that it just couldn't unlock. And whether it's smart having to bail you out every time or take, you know, that's, I'm so proud of what the Celtics team ended up being considering where it felt in January. Like this is one of the all-time great in-season turnarounds that we've ever seen because I, I was like, here we go again. I'm getting really sick of this team just taking turns and sort of being predictable. But having another combo shooter playmaker when Brogdon does change the point of attack. And it takes the burden off of the other guys to just go, hey, fix this and bail us out of something here, um, which can be kind of predictable and easy to defend. Yeah. And speaking of those fourth quarters, it did get so irritating. What was your take on Tatum at the time? I mean, I know you mentioned the wrist earlier. Was he just fatigued? I mean, if you look at it, the regular season in the playoffs, he played the most minutes in the NBA. What do you think happened to Tatum? Because he had such a great season where he was like in fringy MVP candidate, if you will. Obviously, first team all NBA. What do you think happened in the finals? I think he had a hard time with contact. Um, you know, I I appreciate that he's not going for fouls every single time because it's not fun to watch, but it's just the right basketball thing to do. And it felt like if he were driving at an angle and the defender was meeting him at this angle, not to say that he was completely stopping him, uh, Tatum's path would be derailed. It never felt like Tatum made the defender feel him. It felt like Tatum adjusted to the defender every single time. And by the way, Drew Hanlon, his trainer, brought this up when somebody was doing like an ask me anything with him on Twitter. And he was like, what does Tatum need to work on? He's like driving to contact, driving to contact. So you don't have to listen to me about it because uh, that's something I thought I saw and then that he tweeted about it. So I was like, all right, yeah, you know, on the same page here. So I love the Tatum story. I think the problem is once you start going, hey, is this guy top five, you know, after he has has the series he has against the Nets and it's like, oh, let's get this Durant guy out of here. You know, I think it's to me when you're you're talking about top five guys, like I got to see it for a couple seasons and I got to see you be really bad for a season to take you out of that. So with that, 
it also changed the neighborhood that we had Tatum in. So that means the conversation around is going to be a lot harsher. And, you know, maybe he was tired. He was. I, I, but I don't there's, – there's days off in between these finals games. These guys are incredibly young. I hate the default as soon as somebody's bad, they're tired all the time. Now, if he's hurt, <laughs> like really hurt, it's fine. Like the Warriors are a perfect example. So really remember this. The Warriors lose game seven in an epic meltdown at the end of that game in 2016. Now, I don't even think they scored 20 points in the fourth quarter, the Golden State Warriors, mm -hmm. right? They lose, and then people are like, shouldn't have gone for 73 wins. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you feel that way when they were up 2-0? Or when they were up 3-1, did you notice in game five, you're like, you know what? All those minutes are starting to set in now. <laughs> I could see the difference. I could see the difference. And that's the way it gets talked about. Not everybody says it, but there's too many people that say it. I think whenever there's a failure in the playoffs, all of a sudden, it's all of these minutes. Maybe if Tatum were 35, you know, I'd be more open to it. And he wasn't good. He wasn't good. But I don't, you know, maybe it was a reminder to not have him jump 445 other players in the NBA. You know, he's probably closer to 10 than he is five. But he was on that run in that net series, and he was so good. And he had some big, big-time moments. Those moments allow us to ask the question, but I think the answer is that there's still five guys ahead of him. Yeah, I do remember that Warriors thing, too, because that was, like, the second topic on first take after, like, has LeBron passed Jordan? The second thing was, hey, did Steve Kerr blow it by playing all these guys going for the 73 wins? But that was an interesting note on Hanlon in terms of him saying that Tatum needs to draw more contact. Because one of the things that irritated me is, and I know a lot of players do this, but Tatum is just at times he can be over the top with the officials. Do you get that impression with them? And and then what happens is my guy Grant will start complaining like he's a star player as well. It just seems like it's a domino effect with them. Boy, you might be more annoyed with Grant than I am, which I didn't even know if that was possible. This is a big time complaining team. I don't I don't know what it is. I mean, most of the teams complain a lot like the doc teams used to complain like crazy and they still do. Because uh, Doc complains all the time, and he's he'll be the first to admit it. But as a basketball player, if you were a guy with the ball in your hands and you were driving, like sometimes you can forget, especially when you kind of are slight growing up, that you know you can drive in and you can initiate the contact and you get away with it, and you probably get calls. You don't want to always drive to avoid that contact, and so even the handling thing wasn't always about getting free throws; it was about making sure you get your body into somebody and and some people you know don't really figure that out and it's and it's kind of like this amazing thing if you're strong enough you have this epiphany where you're like wait a minute these guys are bouncing off of me or or I control the direction if I go with force because if you alter your path on the drive because you're just trying to get around somebody you're trying to avoid your shot being contested all the time like they're kind of winning the beginning part of that matchup because now you're going at an angle that you may not want to go at so I'm not worried about Tatum. Yeah. I don't think he now, like you can't go from the Nets to top five to now dramatically overrated. I myself don't update this stuff every couple hours uh, where, <laughs> you, where you are with the top five list, although it seems like that all the time. I think these guys should be incredibly proud because this is the first time, you know, all the other series they lost the Easter Conference Finals, you know, that Isaiah Thomas team, that team wasn't good. All right. No. <laughs> uh, the Heat team that they lost to in the bubble, you know, could have gone either way. They had they had nothing for Bam. Um, and then the other time when they lost to Cleveland in 18 in game seven, it was, you know, guys just out of high school running around with LeBron James. So uh, this was one that at least getting past, I still can't believe that Jimmy Butler shot that went up. 
I feel like this was a was a step of like before it felt a little fluky. I felt they were in series, but I didn't expect them to win it. I was kind of up in the air on the Celtics Golden State thing. I picked Golden State at the very end. It was a weird series for me because I actually love Steph so much. But these are all things to build on now, as opposed to like starting to ask what's wrong with some of these guys. Because, you know, really, again, even though I thought Golden State by the end of it was better, uh, you know, they're two games away from doing something really special with a still, you know, still really young group. But the East is tough, man. The East is going to be tough. Yeah, I'm optimistic about it, too. Uh, the one other thing is just Jalen, like, because I remember going back to draft night. People wanted Buddy Heald and Chris Dunn, who were both like, I don't know, 35 when they entered the draft. And Jalen turned out to be way better than I think anybody thought. But the other thing about it is I can't believe how good of a shooter he's become. But at the same time, I can't believe the combination of his ability to shoot and his inability to dribble. That was horrifying at times because he was also hitting like unbelievable shots. Yeah, it, I'm with you. It was one of the weirdest like stretches of an offense you could see from a player because he was keeping him in it with some of these shots that he was making. But I'm a little worried for him that the secret might be out a little bit more because once Golden State's like, wait, as soon as this guy goes to initiate something, just get in there and reach and grab. And it became awful. Like, And I don't want to hear about total turnover numbers because it was it was worse than whatever the final turnover tally was because I'm watching I'm like I can't believe this guy is this good and this productive and he still can't seem to be more than a two dribble guy like whenever I look at somebody coming out of the draft I'm like is this guy a one two dribble guy or does he actually have some handle where he can change direction get into trouble get out of trouble probe and all that kind of stuff it felt like Golden State was like wait a minute and then you keep playing the same guy over and over again so now you're going into it being like hey we get to attack everybody's going to be looking for that now maybe not the intensity we see in the playoffs and certainly not the NBA finals but if I'm him, I'm starting every day dribbling a basketball. Yeah, I mean, that was jarring to watch. And, Rosilla, just before we let you go, you look at the hierarchy of the East, obviously. The Celtics beat the Bucks, but it took them seven games, and they don't have Middleton. The Sixers mm -hmm. look like a better team uh, after what Maury did in the offseason. Where do you kind of have the Celtics right now in the hierarchy of the East? Healthy Milwaukee, I still think is better than everybody else because there's really no answer for Giannis. Even losing that series, I think my respect my respect should have gone up even higher for Giannis after 50 points against the Phoenix Suns and winning a title. I think it went to another level just in that Celtics series. I, I just I love the way he is wired the minute he steps on a basketball court. Even though you know uh, I'm not trying to turn into Gilbert Arenas here, but I can understand because I've had that argument of being like, wait a minute, Durant can get into a shot and make all these shots, and I'm supposed to think this other guy's better than him, but you know Giannis keeps playing doesn't really miss a ton of time. And with Middleton as an outlet, as another shooter who's a big guy who also can kind of defend, I don't know if Boston would have beat him if Middleton was out there. So, you know, the Bucs may have caught themselves another title because I don't know who in Golden State was going to hang with Giannis. Like, Draymond can talk about it, but that's just not realistic. Like the size different over seven-game series is going to expose itself there a little bit. Um, I like Philly, too, but, you know, there's always going to be the hardened thing until we see the playoffs. He's probably due to have a good playoff run. So, who knows? I love Embiid. I like what Maury did. The Miami part, I never thought that they were one of those elite teams, and here they were a three away from Butler playing in the NBA championship, so that's on me. They just do a great job of figuring things out and fighting, even though I didn't really like their offense. And hell, they didn't have a couple of their guys towards the end. And I think Toronto deserves to be mentioned. And then, you know, shit, if Brooklyn actually figures stuff out for a few months... You know, we could be two months into the season going, look at Brooklyn and having the best record. It's going to take me a while to buy into that group because of the personalities. But that's a really, really deep top. And, you know, I didn't mention Chicago in that. I've heard other people do it. Maybe Atlanta with DeJounte. I mean, but that's 
this is a different Eastern Conference than we'd had for what felt like 10 plus years where it was like one or two good teams and then the rest were like hoping they would lose more than they would make the playoffs. Yeah, and that's why last year I just wish the Celtics finished the job because that was probably the best pathway they were going to have to a championship. And look, it's a young team. I mean, we may see it in the future, but I mean, that was a real opportunity. You're right. No, you're right. I, I think you're right because, you know, I still, by the time the season tips off, you know what I had, could I have them third, you know, in the East? It's not a ridiculous statement. People are going to have them third. And I also think Golden State will be better this year. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at it too. I mean, what was the worst you think the honest take? Gilbert Arenas or Perk saying he wasn't Batman? Perk. Yeah. Well, he also said that the Lakers are going to have the best defensive backcourt in the league. So that's worse than the Giannis one. <laughs> I agree with you on that. That's Ryan Rosillo. Rosillo, thanks for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Uh, let me know when I can jump on again. Always uh, good to connect with back home. All right. Appreciate it, man. All right. Coming up next, we'll get into week one, the Patriots and the Dolphins. One thing I want to see the Patriots do with Mac. And I really hope we're not saying Tua is better than Mac after this game coming up on Sunday. Kick off week one with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Join today to get started with $150 in free bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. And if you're not in a sportsbook state and new to fantasy, new customers get a free single game entry when you sign up. Just use the promo code PIKE to get in on the action. Then turn your game day into payday all season long. I'm looking at the Patriots this weekend. You can get them at the money line plus 144. I got the Patriots winning on Sunday, so I am all over that one. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. Play your way and bet on more than just the final score. Wager on everything from touchdowns to total yards to catches. Don't bubble your chance to get $150 in free bets or free DFS single game entry with the promo code PIKE. Make every moment with FanDuel. 21 plus in select states to play on sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com to see fantasy eligibility and terms for both offers. First online real money wager, $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-88-789-777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Tennessee Red Line 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.800gambler.net in West Virginia. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I want to get to a couple things as we get ready for the season. Week one here in the NFL as the Patriots get ready for the Dolphins. Get into something with Mac and two in just a second here. But I'm hoping one thing the Patriots can do to help Mac this year is more playmaking after the catch. So if you look at last season, interesting to me that in terms of just air yards, Mac and Pat Mahomes are pretty close. Mahomes was 10th in the NFL, 2,140. Mac was 11th, 2,027. So then you look at the yak yards, because obviously Mahomes threw for a ton more yards than Mac Jones. You look at the yak last year. So yards after the catch for Mahomes, he led the NFL, 2,699 yak yards. Okay, this is Pat Mahomes, one of the most talented quarterbacks, quite frankly, we've ever seen in the history of the fucking league. He's number one in yak yards last year. Mac Jones was 14th, 1,774. And here's the thing. Mac Jones obviously needs more help in terms of his playmakers than Pat Mahomes does. And this is not meant to be an indictment on Mahomes. Mahomes is obviously great and all that. I'm not saying that he's boosted up by his playmakers. I'm only indicating this to say Pat Mahomes is one of the best quarterbacks, one of the best three to four quarterbacks in the league. He gets this help from his receivers. And Mac Jones was way down on that list when you would think, a guy of Mac's skill set, a guy of Mac's caliber needs that a lot more than Pat Mahomes. He needs those type of yak monsters. So it's just another reason that this Kendrick Bourne situation is so annoying that he had a bad training camp. But what it points out is the Patriots are going to need Kendrick Bourne and they're going to need Ramondre Stevenson in the past game even more than we thought based on those numbers because Mac's going to need to get the ball into his playmaker's hands. That's where he thrives. And if you look at it on the season last year, Mac Jones, the highest ranked Patriot in total yak, not yak perception, total yak last year was Brandon Bolden at 25th at the NFL, 416. In terms of just pure receivers, Kendrick Bourne was 34th at 385, and Bourne was really good on a per-catch basis. He was over seven yak yards per reception, but the problem was he wasn't involved enough, and it looks like we're heading towards that direction again. You just look at it, too. It feels like a lot of these quarterbacks that have thrived are getting a good scheme and they're getting really good skill players. And there's a little bit of a question or a big question entering week one if Mac Jones has either one of those. I mean, you've just look at the leading receivers of the NFL last year. Cooper Cup, 846 yak yards and Cooper Cup won the triple crown and all that. But think about the team he plays for. He has Stafford, who is a fringy top 10 quarterback in the league. But more importantly, as McVay that schemes it up for him, moves him all over the field. Number two on the list in terms of yak was Debo Samuel, 768 yards. Shanahan's the play caller there. He schemed it up for Jimmy Garoppolo to get Debo Samuel all these opportunities, right? So the question that I have right now is, can the Patriots get either one of those two things? Can they get the scheme or can they get the skill? Obviously, we worry right now about the scheme with the Patriots as they flip over from Josh McDaniels to of course, Matt Patricia. So that's obviously a question. And then can you get somebody to perform at a high level after the catch? And the one guy I keep coming back to is Ramondre Stevenson. And if you look at Stevenson at Oklahoma, those numbers aren't high, right? 10 receptions and 18 receptions. And of course, last year, he had just 14 receptions. But one of the comparisons that was made on Stevenson coming out of the draft was Arian Foster. And if you look at Arian Foster, going back to his days at the collegiate level, 14 receptions, 11 receptions, 39 receptions, and 19 receptions, right? So when you look at that, 
that seems a lot more similar to Ramondre Stevenson than, say, for example, the guy that Matt Berry said earlier this week. Of course, he said that he had heard that Ramondre Stevenson could have an Elvin Kamara type impact. I think that's a little rich to put it in that perspective. But Arian Foster, similar bodies. You look at the 40 times Stevenson, 464, Foster, 468. They're similar backs. And remember where Arian Foster really came on was the Shanahan scheme and the Kubiak scheme, if you will, that they were running in Houston. And that's what the Patriots are trying to do from a scheme perspective. Now, we know there has been issues there in terms of how it's gone so far in training camp and into the preseason as well. But it just feels like if you look at this team, the one guy that has tremendous upside on the offensive side of the ball is Ramondre Stevenson, and they need to find a way to get him more involved. And the other thing that comes with that is more play action, right? I mean, if you look at it, Mac Jones at the collegiate level was actually good when he held on to the ball more than two and a half seconds, 14 touchdowns, two interceptions, and a 134.8 rating. He was outstanding, but last year he was bad in those situations, completed just 60.3% of his passes, seven touchdowns, five picks. So much better in college, and obviously that's going to happen at Alabama, but a lot of that has to do with scheme, right? So I just look at what Mac did at Alabama in terms of, and I'm hoping this is what the Patriots unveil on Sunday afternoon is more play action. Mac Jones at Alabama attempted the six most attempts out of play action. He completed 75.4% of those, 15 touchdowns, two interceptions, a 147.2 passer rating. Well, in the NFL, Mac was good last year, 74 of 104, which is 71.2%, but that 104 is just 17th in terms of the attempts. So you look at these collegiate numbers and you say, hey, is there stuff we can carry over from what Mac did at the collegiate level to help him at the NFL? Because Mac obviously last year was really bad in terms of when he had to get rid of the ball in less than two and a half seconds. That was a real problem for Mac Jones last season, when he, or I should say when he had to hold on to the ball for more than two and a half seconds. That had been an issue for Mac Jones last season. So if you can scheme it up and if you can get more play action situations, well, it's going to behoove not only Mac, but the offense, because Mac's not one of these players that just can create everything. You have to scheme some things up for him. He's limited in some capacity. And if you look at last year, this is what's so baffling to me about the play action stuff is Mac Jones, in terms of those play action attempts, we told you he was 17th at the NFL. Herbert was second in the league. And there have been multiple studies done where you don't have to be a great running team to implement more play action, right? I mean, Herbert's team was 21st in rushing yards, yet he was second in play action passes. Mac Jones of the Patriots were eighth at rushing yards. Mahomes was third in play action. His team was 16th at rushing yards. Matt Ryan was sixth in play action attempts last year. His team was 31st in rushing yards. So you can incorporate this into the offense. And I'm hopeful that we'll see some of these changes now that there's at least been a scheme change. One big thing that I don't want to see on Sunday or the reaction to be, I don't want to come out of that game and have a debate about Tua or Mac because Mac is a better player than Tua is. I mean, I just don't see Tua being a great quarterback of the NFL. I don't see it whatsoever. I mean, he is absolutely tiny. He doesn't have a big arm. I just don't see it with Tua. I see it with Mac. I don't with Tua. And if you just look at all the numbers, Mac was better than he was last season. I mean, he's a shorter Jimmy Garoppolo that's lefty. I mean, he's lefty Garoppolo is what he is. You look at Mac, better in intended air yards per attempt, yards per attempt, completion percentage over expectation, and yards per game. So yes, the Dolphins have surrounded Tua with a lot of talent. I just hope that the Patriots, from a defensive perspective, Bill Belichick and company can draw up some stuff 
to confuse Tua, to give him trouble because Tua will struggle if he has to play off schedule. And my whole thing is I want to come out of that game on Sunday saying, hey, Mac is the significantly better player than Tua. All right, I did want to get to our greatest Boston bet of the week from our friends at FanDuel. And at the time of our recording, FanDuel has the Pats money line at plus 144, which is the better bet than the spread. And I believe they're going to win this game. They traveled there early. I'm not saying that's why, but I just feel like Mac Jones and company are going to find some way to do something offensively. And I have to believe that Belichick has something for Tua based on what transpired last year. And it just doesn't make sense to bet the spread when you can get the money line at plus 44. So I am on the Patriots to win this game on Sunday. We needed to start the season that way or else it's going to be a lot of negative storylines entering the weekend. All right, let's get to some calls. The number, of course, 617-396-7172. That is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, this is Brad Coast Garden on from Washington, D.C. Um, I want to uh, get your thoughts on how the Red Sox can rebuild this roster for next year and beyond. Um, I think they only have two relievers and two starters under contract for next year, um, about half of the lineup. Uh, not many pitchers in uh, free agency uh, available and uh, really a, a not a lot of uh, big-name uh, day-to-day players either uh, unless we splash on, on Judge, which I don't think is a good idea considering he's 31. So... Uh, big topic, but how are the Red Sox going to rebuild this roster so quickly? Uh, and I heard also Cora might be a uh, look to be a GM. I don't like it. I, I like him in in the dugout. Uh, dump the GM uh, after this year if he can't pull it together. But uh, Cora is a great manager. Uh, thanks a lot. Love the show. Yeah, interesting question. So I'll answer the last part of that first, which is the Cora situation. That's not going to happen anytime soon. He has said that he doesn't want to be a manager like Tony LaRusso managing forever. And eventually he would like to run a team, but that's down the road. And on the Bloom part of the equation, if Bloom screws up this offseason where the Red Sox have all this money coming off the books, that's going to be it for him. Like if you don't get results next year, that is going to be it for him. This is the most important stretch of Hein Bloom's career because, of course, we know what happened this year with the Major League team. Uh, to your point about the pitching, the guy that I would go after, it's the guy I wanted last year is Carlos Rodon. There is injury history there, but there is massive high upside there. I mean, if you just look at his war, you combine the guys that you have here, and Michael Walker's had a great season, but you combine him and Rich Hill, Carlos Rodon has a better war than both of them combined because he's out there making every start, and he's got a higher upside than both those guys. That's the starting pitcher I would go after. I would re-sign Bogarts, and... This has been a weird situation because Bogarts, by the numbers, the power numbers, I gave you those on one of the first pods I did. They go down every year. And some of his numbers are weird. He is hitting 349 on ground balls, which is the highest in all of Major League Baseball. But he somehow fucking figures it out every year. He figures it out every year. His defense has improved immensely. He's gone from essentially minus nine outs above average to five this year in a positive direction. He's gone from negative five defensive run save to one this year. So you ordinarily don't see this from a 29-year-old. And the other thing is with the shortstops that are available, Trey Turner, his defensive numbers are not great. Bogarts is a better all-around player than Turner. I would just rather keep the guy here 
that has proven he can hit and he can succeed in this market. And the one other portion to the equation, the big thing is re-sign Devers. The first base situation, it seems like that's going to be ironed out. Now we'll see what the rest of the season brings with Tristan Casas. He had a home run, of course, his first of his major league career on Tuesday night. He's going to play pretty much every day. And then the catcher situation, Wong's going to get a big opportunity here, splitting time with Reese McGuire. So that would be a nice pairing to bring back. McGuire is a really good receiver of the ball. His framing number is really good. He's hit since he's come here as well. But the big thing, Carlos Rodon to me, bring back Xander, re-sign Rafael Devers and see what you can do from an outfield perspective. I liked bringing Kike back because you need that good defensive center fielder. We saw how bad the Red Sox were when Jaron Duran was out there. All right, make sure to tune in on Sunday. Okay, we're going to be back on Sunday after the Patriots and the Dolphins season opener. Cannot wait for this. We're going to be with you after every single Patriots game this season. So if you want to rant after the game, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks so much to Isaiah Blakely and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.